How can you do all that needs done in life and still pursue your desire to learn French or the guitar or grow a plant or make art? You can't put a fiddle under your pillow and wake up playing it, though how cool would that be? But one thing we can do, no matter how chaotic and overwhelming life can be, is know that every tiny small motion in the direction of those endeavors really do matter. And not only that, they add up over time with great momentum. Join me, Annie Fane Barillon, as I interview painters and gardeners, designers and musicians, photographers and cooks, creative livers of any kind, who have somehow, in the middle of it all, continued on their creative paths, no matter what. Hello, sweet folks. A quick note to let you know that there is a treat for you at the end of this week's episode. This interview is of percussive dancer, choreographer, and square dance caller Becky Hill. One of the groups she performs with is a group from West Virginia called the T-Mart Rounders. Make sure to listen till the end to hear one of their tracks called Margaret's Song, featuring Jesse Milnes on fiddle, Kevin Chester on banjo, and Becky on feet. This is Fane House Radio, and I'm so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Becky Hill, and my main creative endeavors of my life have definitely been um, around dance. Like dance feels like it's been like this guiding force that takes me on these whole other journeys. Um, I worked at Augusta Heritage Center for years because I went as a student when I was 12. So there was that connection, that kind of like sacred connection to place and community there. So I ended up dance led me there and then dance led me to stay longer in West Virginia through the Mountain Dance Trail Project. Um, dance led me to Nashville, where I did my first full-length uh, evening concert, uh, kind of looking at music and dance traditions of Appalachia. And then dance led me to graduate school. So it's been like any of this, it's kind of been that through line. But then there's, you know, there's lots of other things that I, I love that I would name being creative. Like I think going hiking and being in the woods is creative and paying attention to like the meticulous detail of nature, all of the, the moss on a tree or the way that the water is churning when I'm inside of it. So I feel like those are things that have guided me, my relationship with the environment, both in Appalachia, but also in Michigan where I grew up and my relationship to dance feels very cyclical. It's all there for me. <laughs> you got a little bit of banjo in there too, don't you? I do. I don't think you can live in West Virginia for more than like a couple of years without trying to pick up an instrument, <laughs> at least in certain communities. I was like, in... what's wrong with you? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I was living in Elkins, West Virginia, and I started sort of tinkering on banjo. And I feel like banjo to me, I think with dance, I'm always like pushing and advancing. And I feel like banjo is like an exhale for me. I love playing it in the kitchen when somebody's cooking or I love learning it. Like we were just talking about, I was like, I want to collect a tune from you. I love collecting tunes from different people and having that like human connection of being like, this is a tune I collected from Annie Fane who got it from so-and-so. So banjo is just kind of like this, I'm committed to the banjo for my life, but we are in no rush. We're in a long-term relationship. <laughs> Whereas dance, I'm like in a fully committed, arduous, complicated journey. Like that's what that feels like to distinguish the difference a little bit because everybody has that, you know, one that might be more of a job or it might be a moneymaker or it might be the serious, serious one. And then another option for a creative endeavor doesn't have to be any of that. It could be your relaxing time, the share with people time without any pressure on it. It's nice to have both to balance out. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. It's definitely um, like banjo just feels, I don't know. It feels kind of like sacred to me in a way in the same ways that say like I practice yoga a lot too and that kind of does the same thing for me like it like regrounds me I think when I pick up Kalahammer banjo that has a similar resonance in me whereas dance I think I'm constantly like 
Am I plateauing? How do I pass that plateau? Where's the next hurdle? What's the next thing? How am I? It's like constantly like a, a climb and a curiosity to keep challenging and understanding myself in that way better. Were you like a little kid dancing in the kitchen? Speaking of kitchens? Uh, I was a little, yes, <laughs> like a handful, <laughs> a handful as a child. <laughs> I think, I think that like translates to right now too. Like I just have a, I have a lot of energy. I think dance is an outlet for me in that way. Physically, my mom signed me up for community dance, like, like a community dance class when I was three, just because I was too much of like a rough and scrappy tomboy with my brothers. I have two older brothers. And also she was like, she can't stop moving. We have to start funneling this energy somewhere. And then little did she know, I just ended up becoming like obsessed even as a kid. All I wanted to do was dance and I really wanted to tap dance. Like I was even at that age, wanted to make music or noise with my feet. That was something that resonated. Like I did ballet and I liked it, but it wasn't that the sound was the driving force. That is something to point out because, I mean, you're talking about dance in general, but for people who don't know your work yet, they will, they're going to go mm-hmm. check you out after this. Your specialty is percussive dance. Mm-hmm. So how would you elaborate what that means to you? Yeah, I use that uh, term percussive sort of intentionally right now until like a better thing surfaces <laughs> because I think it means um, that I've collected a lot of things from different communities. And so I grew up as a tap dancer, but I also at the same time of taking like studio tap in rural Michigan, I was also really um, influenced by Wheatland Music Festival and all of the music and dance that would cipher through there. So that was say green grass cloggers or the fiddle puppets or rhythm and shoes or some Quebecois step dance groups. So there was also some really amazing tap dancers that cycled through that funnel. And I was just so hungry for dance that I kept learning from Wheatland. But then Wheatland also connected me to Eileen who sent me to Augusta, which then I learned lots of different dances through apprenticing with Footworks Progressive Dance Ensemble. And then I was snagged by Sharon Leahy when I was like 16. I worked with her company. And so that was kind of in that peak too of the early aughts, like the early 2000s, where there's a lot of funding for dance companies and those kind of organizations. So they're able to bring on apprentices, people like me. But then mid 2000s, right? Like we had a lot of different economic things happening in our world. And I don't think art was funded as well. And so I kind of grew up with all of those knowledges. I grew up with this idea of collecting from people and carrying it in this basket. And so now as a dancer myself, it's like I really specialize in flat footing and clogging. But when I think about music or how to do, like we say, working with the team at Rounders or musical projects, I think about like, well, what is going to serve this music best? And sometimes that's like a full lap from tap as opposed to a clogging basic. And I think that's also genuine to flat footing because the mountains weren't isolated, even though I think we like to think that they were. They were vaudeville shows and minstrel shows and radio and things traveling through here. And so there was constantly an exchange happening. So tap dance was influencing flat footing for years and years. I, like the Charleston is embedded in flat footing as it is in tap. So there is those influences. So I kind of, uh, I use the term percussive because there is such a, a large base of it. Um, that I'm working with. Yeah, definitely. You need some kind of catch-all because on one hand, if it's saying only this and then only that, well, those styles kind of overlap, but then those ones overlap. And of course, when people met and loved a step they saw someone do, they're like, oh, and they would use that step. And -and so-and-so would watch their step Mm -hmm. and use their step. It makes sense. People are trading exactly the same as the music. Mm -hmm. You're totally right that Appalachia was not so isolated as was claimed by certain folks. (laughs) You know, there were turnpikes and people taking their animals across the mountains and, you know, all kinds of stuff was happening. And I think that's really cool to think about in terms of traditional dance. 
Yeah. And I think like as a dancer, you know, that, that can also, I, I realize for some people that feels like problematic, <laughs> like, like this sampling of different forms next to each other. But I think that it's really what kind of helps prevent that sort of friction is to make sure you know who it's coming from. Like if I put a Quebecois shuffle in next to like a clogging shuffle, someone asks me or they're inquiring and be like, oh yeah, I learned that one from Benoit Burt, but I felt like it really fit here. You know, like, so I think sort of trying to, in the best ways that we can, right, our memory is also malleable. To give credit where credit is due allows us to sort of mix and evolve what Appalachian dance can be influenced as of like now, as of today. Well, I was just thinking when you're talking, you know, within traditional Appalachian music and dance, there's sometimes, <laughs> like you're saying, this friction of what is the heritage way? What is the quote right way? Which source musician or dancer are you being informed by? Mm -hmm. And then if it goes too far that way, you're freezing it in time in a superficial way because it exists because of sharing and passing and moving and shaking through time. That's why we have old time. It's why we have flat footing and clogging, for example, you know, it's a mixing of different kind of cultural things going on. And so if that first mixing wasn't allowed, we wouldn't get what we have now. So there has to be some motion in it, but that's the whole debate. Well, how far is the line where you've gone your motion all the way out of the tradition and it's become something new? I have no idea what the answer is. It's an interesting conversation, but I agree with not being super dogmatic. I think it needs to be like welcoming. Yeah. And I think it was, it was super eye-opening for me. I think we'll get to this later, but I just did my MFA in dance and I tried to take these um, structures from old time music from Appalachia, but apply it as like a, a container for questioning while working with, I worked with a flamenco dancer and multiple rhythm tap dancers. And then myself who had flat footing background, but it was like all of these different percussive dance backgrounds, but I didn't have them learn the Tennessee walking step. Like that wasn't part of the choreography, but I would be like, okay, what if we we're thinking about this musical concept of dancing the tune? So let's kind of use this point of me and this rhythm tap dancer. We translated the melody of the tune in conversation with each other. So it involved things from both of us or say like the we did this improvisational score. And instead of saying like, what is the exact steps? I like gave the structure and was like, can you accent this rhythmic phrasing and this rhythm? And then everyone was improvising to like, at, like a sort of structure that happens in Appalachia without being like, this is the way it's supposed to be. And I think there's something interesting about that choreographically for me, because it kind of also takes the, the colonization out of it. <laughs> me being like, you must dance like this. It's more like, oh, we can all figure out how to be connected to tradition without being like domineering that like this tradition is the only way, which is interesting to me as a, as a like chore choreographer, as a maker. I think there's a lot of ways that we can choreograph while staying genuine to each person's strengths. Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I love the idea of how you're taking a melody moment or a rhythmic moment and then having each person improv interpret in their own way. And that is one of the coolest things about percussive dance and to have that next to each other is very, very cool. Yeah, I would like with my thesis, I kind of focus on this idea of translation or transmission and how like in folk music, that process happens over and over and over and over again. <laughs> so I could show you a step and you could show someone else. And it's like this crazy game of telephone. We don't it's usually tethered to the original source, but there's usually a whole journey that it goes through. And so I was really exploring that idea. And so I, I kind of investigated that through melodic replication. So kind of like dancing the tune, letting your feet do the talking, like what can we say? 
that is close to the tune. And then what happens if you remove the tune? What happens if we generate a new tune after that is only dependent on the feet? Like we asked a lot of questions in that duet. And then it moved to improvisation because this dance form is all about improvising and being in conversation in the present with each other. And so that was like a, the structure I was talking about with like space and giving rhythmic sequencing to ground it. And then the last one was called Sonic Abstraction, which I took sound samples from Appalachia, but I like took them into tiny sound bites and then was like filtering them through a dance board that was triggered by a modular synthesizer. And so when I was dancing, we had developed a score with a, a DJ and composer in Baltimore. And so when I was dancing, I was triggering sounds from Appalachia, but like in a whole other way, like in a way that was using the sounds, using the the memory, using the archive that I carry as a dancer, but um, seeing what new creations could happen once it's abstracted. So it was like this whole investigation on transmission, <laughs> translation. Yeah. I mean, and clearly so much thoughtful thought went into this. <laughs> if people want to see your final show, is there a way to see it online? Yes and no. I have been just really busy since graduating. So you can reach out to me personally and I can send a private link of the show. And I'm in the process of sort of editing some tracks that'll be up online. There's photos up online, but cool, cool. it'll be something more at some point soon. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> to yeah. be announced. To be shared, or maybe I'll just secretly <laughs> share it. My, my written thesis is now available for reading, which is intimidating and lovely and intimidating. <laughs> I recently got an email that was like, I just, just read your thesis. And I was like, oh, great. Well, what's the name <laughs> of your thesis? It's called Lost Patterns, an Investigation into Translation. And you can look that up on Google Scholar underneath my name, Rebecca Hill, though. That's like the academic full-length name. For people who don't know, I mean, you know, I already know. So, I mean, what I'm trying to say is we might be using some lingo because we're both mm -hmm. our flat footer, clogger, banjo people. Yeah. So for people that don't know, how do you describe flat footing and clogging the difference between the two? Um, also, just for people to understand that the idea of the style of dance is you have your fiddle, your banjos, you know, your people playing tunes, and that when you're dancing, you are freestyling, coming up with things on the spot, unless you're in a clogging team, where it's more choreographed, but you're really truly listening to the music and following along with it and dancing differently with different tunes and that kind of thing. Can you elaborate a little from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, I think we keep talking about how it's like improvisational, and I, I really think that's true. There, I think there's a improvisational even in the names that are being used for it. So uh, in certain places, people call it just dancing. In other places, they would might identify with it as clogging or flat footing or buck dance or hoedown or jig. And a lot of those, I think um, when we start to kind of be like, this is this and this is this, it's like it gets a little blurry in rural towns in Appalachia. One way that I think about it is that clogging teams it's like there's an agreement of like this is the basic steps this is the repertoire we're using i still think that there's some regional differences like a north carolina clogging team and maybe the footwork that they would really use i think differs from say like a clogging team in pennsylvania right like there's some regional differences but a lot of times that shovel step rock step shovel step rock step do 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 rock got like that like deriving got a got behind the fiddle tune that feels most resonant to me is the term clogging However, I've seen people at Floyd, they just remove the shuffle this is at the Floyd Country Store and they go scuff, gut, 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 scuff, and all of a sudden it's flat footing to them. So I think that that also represents the, the malleable improvisational nature of it is that people can kind of have their own relationship to it and their own names. I think different places have different opinions. Well, that's the cool thing about all of this is on one hand, there's a rigidity to, well, what is flat footing? What is clogging? What is old time music? That kind of thing. 
On another hand, once you start looking into it and researching and talking to people, you find different answers everywhere you go, <laughs> which gives us permission to, you know, also kind of add our own self into there a little bit. Yeah. And I think if people want to learn more, you know, there is, there's not a ton of resources out there, but like Susan Spaulding is an incredible scholar. So is Phil Jameson. We also have Ruth Parishing and Mike Seeger that did Talking Feet. Like there's, there's some good resources out there, which it's helpful to hear people that dance, say it for them, like say it from who they are. I did a project with Jerry Milnes at Augusta Heritage Center, looking at West Virginia specific dance traditions. And we made a little documentary. And I think kind of hearing it, like seeing a video or meeting a person and seeing like, oh, they call this clogging. Okay, but this is, and you just start to notice that that blurriness um, all over. But yeah, there's some great scholarship, some yes. scholarship. I feel like there needs to be more. We have to get out there. Phil Jameson's book is wonderful. Go down reels and frolics. Well, Phil Jameson, Sorry, look Phil. it up. It's great. Super great. And Susan has a book called Communities in Motion, which was mind blowing for me. Really beautiful writing. Did you have a particular mentor or teacher that super encouraged you or a point where you were not sure or didn't know what step to take next, you know, that kind of who helped you along? I mean, maybe sometimes we don't falter at all. We are on that path. We know we're going to do it no matter what. Mm -hmm. And we still have a mentor that adds something new shifts, you know, or sometimes we're like, I don't know if I could do this as my living. And they're like, yes, you can. Do you have anybody mm -hmm. like that? <laughs> Yeah, it feels like there's a collective, right? I think because this is a community tradition, it's hard to be like, there's just one person. I do remember though, like there's a couple of people that feel like highlights to me. One is Sharon Lakey, who used to run Rhythm and Shoes. She once told me, she's like, Becky, if there's anything else you can do that you love as much as dancing, you should do it. And I was like, here's the issue. I don't think there is. Like there is things that I really enjoy doing. Like I'm a do event coordinating and was an arts administration for a while. And I love that. And I love having that being equal to dance, but there needs to be like the dance is kind of the through line. So Sharon Leahy has definitely shared a lot of incredible knowledge with me. So has Sandy Silva. She's in Quebec, Montreal. She really has such a, a musical brain that kind of challenged me to kind of think and hear things a little bit different and really encouraged getting outside of my box, which I think my dancing completely shifted when I did One Beat in 2018, which is US State Department Cultural Diplomacy Program. It's like, oh, the beautiful thing about dancing is it can cross cultures and music so well. And so that has kind of led me on a whole other mission of collaborating with people outside of the Appalachian tradition. Who else? Let's see, you know, in terms of folklore and in terms of just the direction my life is going, Jerry Milnes is a huge influence. I don't think I would have stayed in West Virginia if it wasn't for him. And so his guidance and the way that he taught me to think about folklore as like creating friendships and relationships with people has been truly pivotal in my life. I think there's also something about like, I've been thinking about this a lot. The whole idea is that you're kind of learning and collecting from these master artists, but there becomes a moment where you're the student and they're the teacher, and then you become the support for them as they age. And so of kind of like holding those master artists with the same love and respect as you did when they were younger and were like kind of schooling you, right? Like, and now it's like, I think I'm at that moment, especially in West Virginia with a lot of my elder square dance callers and things that I, it's almost like elderly care of like, how do you hold them in those artistry? And so like some of those names are like Bill Osi and Lou Maiori, Max Samples, all of that. And Ellen Eugene Ratcliffe, like there's a whole crew of dancers in their 70s, 80s and 90s in Virginia that, that kind of forced me to all, they like handed me the microphone and so. Those are, are deep friends, but I'm also realizing like, oh, I get to support them in their older life and hold them in the same regard. 
those are a lot of names. Eileen Carson is also one. When I was younger, she kind of nudged me to keep dancing. Yeah, there's so many. And I think also there's your peers that continue, like Nick Garris, that kind of continue to be like, yep, keep it up. Keep doing it. You know, we're here for each other. I think that's also useful. Well, it helps so much to have people say, this is great. What you're doing is so good. You have to keep going. <laughs> you know, we can give ourselves, yeah. we can do our own pep talks. That's fine. It's not like we can't, mm -hmm. you know, encourage our own selves, but there's something very powerful in that feeling of being around people who understand what you're trying to do and you're inspired by them or things you would like to learn from them. And I love what you're saying about taking care, even after you've quote learned or taken from them that you could give back. That's been a hard thing with an Appalachian culture where people from the outside will come and take and then depart with the information or the tune or whatever, and not continue that relationship. And that is a hurtful thing. And it's like cultural mining. And so to have the true friendships and to treat the elders as special and amazing, even if they couldn't like show you that fancy step anymore is very special. Yeah. And it feels like I entered the old time scene in West Virginia, just at this time where I got to see them in their like heyday and in their brilliancy. And then, you know, I think the pandemic has aged a lot of us in different ways. And I, I really see it sort of impacting the, the dance community in West Virginia, because it was sort of a, an aged community before the pandemic. And then if you're in your mid seventies and or eighties and you quit dancing because there's no social dance, it's like life kind of catches up with you. And so it's been super powerful and also like a reality check to be like, okay, these people I love and they've shared so much with me. And now how, how do you support them in ways that make them feel loved and seen and valued? So you were telling us some about your dance program and I love hearing the name of it, the theme, the thought that you had behind it. Also, that's like a huge collaboration involving other people and collaboration is something you're continuing with. But I was also curious, how did you decide, okay, I'm going to take this in academic direction, or I'm going to go to school for this? How did you come to that as a, like a confident decision that you knew you were, I'm going to do it? Well, I'd worked for Augusta Heritage Center for almost a decade. So that was like from 20, because I like <laughs> went right, I was, I was like a work study student at Augusta while I was there. And then I ended up doing an AmeriCorps and then that rolled into this whole job. And then before I knew it, I was like the second person in charge, right? There was a really small office during during the year. And so we did all the programming, we did event coordinating. It was just kind of like all hands on deck. And it was an incredible opportunity. And I just kind of decided I went part-time and from a distance, like part-time during the year in a distance and moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And when I was there, I got a chance to work and build my first full length, like I said, music and dance concert. And it was received really well. And it, I had to kind of mimic the structures that I had learned from Eileen or from Sharon and those dance companies, Matt Allwell and Leolson, like from working with all those people, I felt like I had to kind of like mimic and understand that for myself. And that show was called Shift. And I did. And then I think from there, I was like, okay, well, I have all this footage. What can happen now with it? Like, well, I've always wanted to go back to school. I'm like such a curious learner. And I think I, I was debating at that moment between folklore and dance. And I visited a bunch of folklore programs and I visited a, like a handful of dance programs and I kind of applied. I was like, okay, here, I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to apply for dance, fully funded dance programs. And if I get in fully funded, then I'm going to go the direction of dance. And if not, then I will go the direction of folklore and also work on getting funding. <laughs> That's the key. Money is the key sometimes. But I got, uh, I got offers from both Temple and University of Maryland and University of Maryland seemed like it was the best fit. And so um, once I got the offer, it was actually the time that the director of Augusta was also stepping down. So it was this moment of, okay, I could apply to be the director of Augusta and like continue this decade long investigation that I'm doing, or I could take a giant risk and 
go to school and push myself. And I thought, I think I might regret not going to school for dance. Um, especially if I'm not going into depth for it. So I went that route and it definitely was like the craziest experience of my life. It also happened in the middle of a pandemic. So a lot of things shifted. It was a three year program. It's also like, even though my program was fully funded, University of Maryland, it was also a huge challenge to have academia respect vernacular and folk dance traditions with the same regard as modern or contemporary dance. I also had to learn a whole new dance form. I'd like fully train three times a week for three years and modern dance to get my degree and kind of like code switch into that world. So it wasn't easy in any way, but I think the opportunity to do it really shaped like what I believe in and what I want to do with this with this work. It also really ignited that fire uh, with teaching. I always have loved teaching and I realized I taught seven, I think seven classes at University of Maryland. I was like, I love this age. I love that they're questioning things there's like a moment when you're an undergrad where you're like kind of challenging the beliefs you were brought up with and kind of understanding your own identity. And it is really exciting to get in there too and be like, well, have you thought about go-go dancing, having a connection or like a go-go, what I'm saying, beat your feet, like DC area, urban dance. Like, oh yeah, that's connected to flat footing. Like we might not think about it, but in our bodies, there's like this connectivity. So kind of challenging their embodiment, the, the ways that we see the world and how there's more connective tissue than we think. And so all of that was kind of why I decided to to go that route. And I'm currently in that lovely, wonderful place of having your degree and applying for a million jobs <laughs> and hoping I will land somewhere. Sounds like you're glad that you did yeah. it so far. Yeah. So far. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely like, it was such a whirlwind journey that I can't, you know, you go through moments of loving it. You go through moments of absolutely hating it. You go through moments of just anger and radical joy and all of it. And it was, it was a lot, especially to put that on top of early pandemic when people were like, I'm going to pick up knitting. I'm like, I'm in my first year of my MFA program and it's not stopping, you know, like, so you just kind of had to like hit it hard through all of, all of those ups and downs that we experienced as a, as a country and as a world. It is a lot to ask of someone, you know, you're talking about having to also do the modern dance and that is very different, you know, (laughs) how, I mean, are you hooked on modern dance now? Did it kind of like slowly get under your skin? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And no, I think I really loved sort of digging into the structures and the way that modern and contemporary artists sort of choreograph and conceive of things like those things felt very fruitful to me. There's also certain teachers like Kendra Portier, who is just a fierce, holistic, kind of like embodied postmodern dance teacher who I just like love the way that she dances. And I feel so energized from her kind of teaching, but like, just like there is different ways of say tap and flat footing and, you know, like there's um, different sectors of postmodern dance i think i really gravitated towards like po- like judson church era dancing and like there's certain like elven alien like yeah that's just not my like physically in my body it's like not my jam it's super hard and technical and it just doesn't like cunningham doesn't fit right who i am as a person but i can take influence from them and i think that the program was good at like forcing us to take classes from lots of different teachers in our reigns there and kind of identifying like what is what's the vocabulary I mean, do I wish that I could have spent three years, three times a week studying with like a master percussive dancer? Yes, of course. But there is no program in this country that values percussive dance of any medium in that way. So to sort of continue to be a leader in the ways that academic can change, you kind of, I kind of had to code switch and learn modern dance. 
So you did a mix of code switching, but also creating your own program, basically? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no program, an MFA or PhD that offers like you to rigorously study even tap dance, right? Like tap is, I think, a little bit more tangible for that academic world than sleep while you're clogging or other step dance, but there really isn't a place that you can kind of fully focus on that. And so I had to, I followed the whole program and we focused on different like pedagogy techniques and different like research, dance research and all of that while studying modern dance. Like that's kind of what you have to do if you're like a Lindy Hop dancer or a top dancer, or if you like the main foundation for all those programs happens to be right now, modern dance. So it wasn't like I built my own program. It's just that I had to hold what I wanted to learn and do like safe and guarded in my heart and like make sure that that was the leading research. And it was eventually like I got to make a percussive dance show for my MFA thesis. Like I was able to do that, but you kind of have to like hold it in there and like not get, you have to approach learning a whole new dance form at 30 with like levity to be like, I am not going to become a professional modern dancer, but I have to do this to keep doing percussive dance. (laughs) Well, who knows you, we might be speaking right now to the very first person to create a professional (laughs) percussive dance program at university level. Who knows? We don't know. Hey, <laughs> awesome. Yes. And there are some people doing some incredible work. Like right now is a, a pivotal time. I think dance programs are realizing like, oh shit, we didn't, we weren't all inclusive of all of these different traditions. And so I think a lot of that energy is happening right now, which is, I'm excited to see. And I'm very optimistic and hopeful that in the next 10 years, dance study in this country might look a little different. What would you say has been one of your biggest struggles when it comes to staying on your path? You've referenced a few things. Of course, finances are a thing for everybody, you know, and how to pay for ourselves while we study and dive into these things. And of course, sometimes it could be part of your work. I don't want to assume finances were your only struggle, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think finances are definitely one of them. I think there's these moments where I feel like my life is rich in community and in the things I've gotten to do that I kind of, I don't think about the finances as much. Like obviously you got to like pay the bills and everything. But um, yeah, there's no different things. Like I broke my ankle early on. So that kind of laid me off for about a year of dancing. There's been just like family things that come up. We all, and like we all live and have the curve balls that get thrown at us. I think the biggest thing for me is wanting to continue to advance and realizing like, I think there was some friction with me living in West Virginia of wanting to continue to learn and advance, but realizing that like I was a person bringing a lot of that into the community. And so it felt like it kind of like plateaued for years long, like years longer than I wanted it to. And now I'm like kind of refusing to plateau, which I think kind of happened. They say when I was like 26, I was like, oh my gosh, I've plateaued from 18 to 24 and just been like sailing on this and like doing projects. Like I did this really great film with Sharon Leahy during that time and other things, but just kind of feeling like it's a really slow climb that kind of would go like this and then go up. But now I'm at that moment in my life where I'm like, keep going. Like I have like all these lists of trainings that I want to do and like keep the momentum of, you know, just being in academia to be like, I can just keep, keep going. Yeah. In your opinion, why do you think it's important to pay attention to Appalachian and traditional music and dance? You know, it's interesting. I don't know if everyone feels the same way I do. Like, I don't know if everyone's going to listen to a banjo and be like, this like resonates in my body, right? Like, I don't think that's the case. And do you think community 
music and dance traditions have such value in terms of connection, in terms of like learning how to communicate without words, learning how to listen without <laughs> speaking, <laughs> learning how to, yeah, how to be, how to be empathetic, how to embrace variations, all of those kind of things I think come from any sort of music and dance tradition. So for me, it happens to be Appalachian music and dance that have offered that kind of insight. But I do think that there's, that also happens in Santa Rocha communities. It also happens in other, like the Zydeco music and dance community, right? There's all of that. So I think it's just finding, I think there's value and gathering around some sort of tradition. Yeah, I that seems a relatively simple way of saying all of the yeah. things I'm thinking. Yeah, well, a lot of the best things are that simple. <laughs> Where can people learn more about what you offer and what you're up to right now? Yeah, well, if it's better at updating my website, the website would be the way. But my website is um, www.rebeccahill.org. And also, if you just type in Becky Hill, like dancer on Google, I usually come up. There is a Becky Hill famous country singer. That is not me. I am the progressive dancer. There's also a Becky Hill contra dance caller that makes really beautiful dances who has now passed on. That is also not me. You can find me there. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook as well. What is filling up your inspiration cup these days? Ooh, there's so many things. Well, I'm at the John C. Campbell Folk School and getting to hang out with Annie Fane fills me up and will continue to. <laughs> there's also, um, I've had the chance at the folk school to bring in a couple artists, and one of them was Ben Nelson, who grew up um, second generation old time musician. And we just spent about, I don't know, two weeks together working on banjo feet duets and kind of like nerding out about certain field recordings and sharing that dialogue. Like I think banjo and feet share the same role in old time music. So it's like rhythm and melody. And so we kind of choreographed and arranged and dug into a bunch of tunes and that was pretty joyful and joyous for me in, in multiple ways and then currently my friend Bruna Lucchese from Sao Paulo Brazil is at the folk school with me and she sings the uh, singer-songwriter and writes in Portuguese and English and so we have been spending the days kind of digging into that other side of like how can this percussive dance basket <laughs> filter over into different musical traditions so those are the things that are currently filling me up but um yeah, there's always there's always a project going on. I'm really stoked about triggering this dance board with Eric Spangler um, and kind of making more experimental music and dance things in that way. Being in conversation physically and emotionally with lots of other dancers, all of those things feel good. I think collaboration feels really key for me right now, coming out of years of sort of being in the studio by myself because there wasn't another progressive dancer at the program. And so when there's more than one person in the room, I'm happy. Do you have any last words of encouragement for everybody out there doing the very best they can to fold <laughs> creativity, large and small, into their daily lives? Yeah, I think just carving out time for it, right? Like, it's so easy. I just made a to-do list after teaching for two weeks, and I was like, oh my god, I have so much to do. And it's just kind of like you have to carve that time, like make it, um, make it sacred. Put it on your to-do list to like read that book of poetry that you really want or to go on that walk or to pull out your instrument and jam with your neighbor, right? Like kind of just carving out the time and saying, yes, I'm going to do this. It'll pay off. And I think your life will be richer for it. And I'm definitely like a person that's like work hard, play hard. So like put your work in and then also like embrace like the radical joy that you also are living and being here right now.
Said that John would never go to work and pay the rent. But at least John didn't beat on me like all my sister's men. My daddy was a mean old man. He never did no good. He ran my Johnny out of town the only way he could. He said I couldn't marry John since I was just 16. So we ran away to Baltimore, my little John and me. live for 40 years but we made our house a loving home and raised a family there then we moved back to the hills of home back to the country air and all we knew was happiness a little while there Our dream began to fade and to unwind And the doctor said that Alzheimer's would take my Johnny's mind He said just put me in a home I knew I never could I always thought I'd care for him I always said I would Looked there for his guns His favorite one was missing And I knew just what he'd done He didn't want to burden me He wanted me to live But what do I have in this world If Johnny's gone from it? like to be in touch, email me at afainhouse at gmail.com. If you would like to watch these interviews in video form and are curious about the happenings of my little business called Fainhouse, where I paint and make art prints and gift cards from my watercolor originals, I'd love for you to sign up for my email list. When you do, you get a coupon for 10% off a one-time purchase in my Etsy shop and first dibs on my annual limited edition calendar printing. 
you will also be granted access to our free private Facebook group, which is the one spot you can watch these interviews. If this all sounds fun to you, go to your web browser and type bit.ly forward slash Fainhouse to sign up. This is not a weekly newsletter, but rather a list of folks who are interested in hearing from me time to time. You can find this link, as well as links for each person I interview, in the show notes of each episode. Thanks so much to Becky for joining us today, and thanks so much to you for listening. I'm Annie Fain Barillon, and I'll leave you with a quote for the day. There are shortcuts to happiness, and dance is one of them. Vicky Baum.